This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon explores the phenomenon of so called fake news and what, if anything, it has to do with competition policy and antitrust. They can make anything bad because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. Whatever happened to fair press? Whatever happened to honest reporting? Here's Karan Beaton Wells. Since his 2016 election to the most powerful office in the world, attacks on the press have been commonplace in the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Often related to the reporting of alleged Russian interference in the election, Trump's lashings have been directed at traditional news organizations like CNN and the Washington Post. But more recently, the US president's attention has turned to internet companies like Google, Facebook, and even his own personal favorite, Twitter, charging them with bias against conservatives. Very importantly, my administration is also standing up. For the free speech rights of all Americans, free speech rights. Look at social media. It's a thing called free speech rights. You look at Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media giants. And I've made it clear that we as a country cannot tolerate political censorship, blacklisting, and rigged search results. Now, you may see some contradiction in cracking down on the press for so called fake news on the one hand, while railing about the sanctity of free speech on the other. But in the interests of rational, logical debate, let's leave Trump's contributions out of it for now. We might have to come back to him later. In this episode, I want to explore whether fake news is a competition problem, and if so, what kind? Too little competition? Or too much? These are questions on which you won't be surprised to hear. Reasonable, emphasis on reasonable, minds inevitably will differ. So I want to lay out both sides of the argument for you and leave you to make up your own. But first, we need to know just what we're talking about. What is fake news? Well, when I started out researching for this episode, The meaning of the term seemed, well, pretty self evident. But then, the more I thought about it, well, for a start, as Virgil Santos of the Center for Media Freedom and Responsibility pointed out in an interview on ABS CBN News, it contradicts itself, the phrase, because news is something that is supposed to have happened. And、uh, what fake news is, I suppose, It's an occurrence that did not occur. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, I would prefer to use probably false information. But in the current discourse, fake news is not just false in the sense it's simply factually wrong. To be fake in the way that the word is being used, the information must not only be provably incorrect, it must also be deliberately false. 
It's fabricated news. Of course, that takes us into the murky terrain of facts and opinion. But putting that to one side for the moment, there's another element at work here. One that's perhaps more important than just the veracity of the information. It's an element of purpose or intent. Specifically, an intention to at least mislead, if not deceive. Part of this is that so-called fake news is packaged and presented as if it were real or legitimate news. Motive also seems important in how we understand this phenomenon. Most often, the motive driving fake news is one of influencing public opinion to a particular end. And in recent years, in the context of elections not just in the US, but from Pakistan to Poland, the Philippines to Finland, the motive has been to sway public opinion for political purposes. So in this sense, fake news seems closely aligned to, well, propaganda. Depending on who the news purveyor is, though, in many cases, fake news may simply be the product of the good old profit motive at work. Indeed, there now appears to be quite an industry of fake news purveyors. And finally, as should be obvious by now, fake news is news that is widespread, not just something that diffuses through gossip over the backyard fence. We're talking news that goes viral. So, to sum it up for you, when we're talking about fake news, we're talking about news that is, one, demonstrably incorrect, two, deliberately so, three, with an intent to mislead or deceive, four, for some self-interested reason, and five, News that travels far and wide and fast. But is fake news new? It seems pretty clear it's not. Fake news has been a reading staple for as long as journalists have spun words. But there are some new dynamics here. There's a new environment for the news. Internet economics, the technology boom, political rhetoric and superstar competition are challenging news producers and consumers in unprecedented ways. Just a decade ago, news companies as we used to know them played an important gatekeeper role. But that role's been disintermediated at best, overtaken at worst, by the mega platforms. Information doesn't just flow through gates, it gushes in torrents and around the gates, and we can each amplify it. In short, fake news has been supercharged. In this environment, fake news is seen as undermining trust in the media, and that in turn is said to threaten processes of democracy. 62% of Americans who've been surveyed say fake news has eroded their trust in traditional media. And it's also entrenching ideological divisions, polarizing society across political, social, and cultural lines. Now, mind you, these impacts are not just the product of fake news. They're also associated with users becoming encased in filter bubbles of like-minded people, unwittingly locked up in virtual echo chambers that reinforce their own biases. Let's hear what Roger McNamee of the VC firm Elevation Partners had to say about this 
at a conference held by the Open Markets Institute aptly titled Breaking News. McNamee was in fact an early investor in Facebook, but he's become highly critical of its impact on society and democracy. These companies went after democracy from two different directions. The first direction they went to was that they essentially broke the dialogue by first creating filter bubbles that allowed people, essentially in Facebook's case, to have 2.2 billion Truman shows. Everybody has their own reality. And what happens is if you're in a filter bubble long enough, you then develop a preference bubble. You're in a tribe, you identify with your tribe, and then you consciously exclude voices you do not like. And so Facebook did the preference bubble thing like nobody before. But the second thing they did was to destroy the economics of the countervailing force. And, you know, that being journalism and, I think for lack of a better term, fact, right? It essentially devalued fact and replaced it with whatever was trending. Mind you, not everyone accepts this thesis. There are some who argue that panic over echo chambers and filter bubbles is exaggerated and not supported by research into user behaviour. That may be so, but at the same time, let's appreciate that fake news as a concept has been so effectively conscripted by politicians, it's become an idea that in itself is having anti-democratic effects. Trump's press boycotts are evidence of that, But the Burmese military and the president of the Philippines, they too have used fake news claims to dismiss reports that oppose their preferred narratives. For some, like BuzzFeed editor Craig Silverman, who's been studying fake news for years, these effects are so troubling, he says we should stop using the term altogether. The term has really been, I think, co-opted, and it's almost like a jujitsu move that Donald Trump has done where... People were saying fake news was one of the things that kind of got him elected and maybe people had been tricked by these stories. And he felt like that undermined the legitimacy of of his election. So he decided to take the term and sort of make it in his own image. And so he uses it today to criticize reporting that he doesn't like. And I think, frankly, at this point, the term in some ways has become almost meaningless. Or at the very least, it means whatever your side thinks it does. Okay, I have a confession. When I got to this point in the episode having looked at what fake news means and realised the whole idea might itself be fake, or at least highly manipulable, I had to ask myself, was there any point in even progressing to the next question about fake news as a competition problem? Maybe the episode itself was a hoax. But after some reflection, I decided to press on. Because if we can think about fakeness as an element of news quality, regardless of who's propagating it and why, well, then we can and we should talk about competition. And the question becomes, is the state of competition in news markets reducing the quality of our news? So let's start with the proposition that fake or poor quality news is the product of too little competition in news markets. Now here, the argument is a fairly simple one, perhaps even seductively simple. Let me step you through it. 
The starting point would be that large digital platforms like Facebook and Google now exercise substantial control over the distribution of news. I won't bore you with the stats, but take it from me, a significant proportion of us receive our news from these sources. The second step in the argument is that these companies compete against the so-called real news providers. They compete for user attention, user data, and arguably, most importantly, ad dollars, traditionally the lifeblood in the news business model. And so this creates a conflict, not in horizontal, but in vertical competition. And for those of you who've been following the Brussels case against Google in shopping search and the more recent investigation into Amazon, this is going to start familiar. Here's how Sally Hubbard, senior editor at Capital Forum and former assistant AG in the New York Antitrust Bureau sees the issue. Speaking at a Milken Institute conference on big tech and antitrust, she said, What I'm mostly concerned about with the tech platforms is that they are controlling the arena in which the game is played, and they are also playing the game. So the result of that is that we have a playing field for competition that is quite distorted. And what I've called this is platform privilege, and that's the incentive and the ability of a platform to favor its own products and services over those of competitors. The third step in the argument that fake news is the product of excessive platform market power goes like this. Google and Facebook have strong incentives to keep users on their platforms, locked within their digital walls as much and as long as possible. And correspondingly, They've got low incentives to steer users towards the properties of news publishers. Fourth, you still with me? The platforms are essentially in the business of garnering and reselling attention. And it's generally the lowest quality news that attracts the most attention. It's what generates the most engagement. And face it, the platforms are masters at engaging, or some might say, addicting us. And so, to close out the argument, the power of Google and Facebook in search and social networks means that their scale is directly correlated to the scope of the damage caused by fake news. Okay, well, let's say we accept the argument that fake news is a problem of too little competition. What do the advocates of this argument say should be done about it? Well, no surprises here, more antitrust enforcement, specifically European-style enforcement, and especially when it comes to competition in vertical channels. Greater vigilance in merger control too. No more waving through Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, YouTube-type acquisitions, and a closer eye on acquisitions that might snuff out potential competitors. And further... If antitrust agencies aren't up to or don't have the appetite for the job, and even if they do, regulate. Regulate for data portability to promote multi-homing. Regulate for journalistic and editorial standards on the platforms. And if need be, break them up and regulate them like public utilities. Phew, that's a wish list.
what's the other side of the argument? Here we go. First, yes, Google and Facebook are big when it comes to influencing information flows, but big of itself is not bad. Heard that before? And if their business is having undesirable, dangerous even, civic and political effects, then that's not an antitrust issue. Sure, there may be a case for legislative or regulatory measures, greater controls on political advertising, for example, but antitrust? That should be left out of it. We should keep faith with an unadulterated consumer welfare standard. And for those who take this view, there might be some relief in having support from Macon Delrahim, Assistant AG of the US DOJ Antitrust Division. As he told the Open Markets Institute, and I quote, we don't need to go beyond the consumer welfare standard because it can get the job done on its own. Apologies, I can't do the American accent. Second step in the argument. Yes, the media industry has taken a shellacking, but the internet did that, not the platforms. And there are some news companies that have responded to digital disruption in a positive way and shown they won't just survive, they'll thrive in this new environment. The New York Times experience seems to bear this out. Here's its CEO, Mark Thompson, at the same conference. Today we have more digital news subscribers than any other news organisation in the world and at getting on for 4 million, twice as many total subscriber relationships as at the very peak of print 25 years ago. Our revenue and operating profits have been growing, not failing, whatever a little bird might have told you. (laughs) The Times responded to digital disruption not by disinvesting in high-quality news and opinion, but by doubling down on them. As we found, whatever the cultural pessimists may say, a growing number of people here and around the world are willing to pay for it. Third, and getting into the technicalities here, yes, Google may be dominant in search and Facebook in social media, but are those the correct product markets for antitrust purposes? After all, the platforms aren't themselves in the business of running a newsroom. And if we need to be talking about the market for attention, well, they can hardly be said to be dominant in that market. At least I jolly well hope not. Even if there's an issue of these companies leveraging dominance in their core businesses in a way that harms competition in related market spaces, then fourth, as the argument proceeds, one should question whether they have both the ability and the incentive to foreclose news companies as competitors. In terms of ability, let's not forget that consumers of these services multi-home, meaning they go to multiple sources for information. And just because they happen on what seems to look like news content while they're browsing or posting, that doesn't mean they actually engage with it. In terms of incentives, it's argued that the platforms have no incentive to harm news producers because they're supplying a valuable input to users. In fact, it's argued that the platforms have incentives to work with news companies to ensure a market for quality news continues to survive. And there are signs of them doing just this, ploughing resources into greater transparency and fact-checking. Indeed, 
There's some in the news industry who are quite upbeat about indications the platforms are ready to work with them in this mission. Here's Mark Thompson again. Like many media executives, I've spent time with the leaders of Google, Facebook and Apple and others, and I've seen no evidence that they want to destroy journalism or are unaware of the crisis in the economics of news or indeed unwilling to explore ways of improving the ecosystem. Google, in particular, has taken a series of tangible steps to help news organisations build digital subscriptions, for instance, allowing publishers to deploy their subscription rules in the Google platform rather than imposing Google's own rules on them. Even at Facebook, there's signs it's recovered from the initial shock of learning that not everyone shares its vision of connecting the world for the greater good. It's clearly recognised it's open to manipulation and it's got a responsibility to do something about it. Facebook's emphasis, though, is on giving us yet more information, helping us to understand the context of what we're reading and to assess whether we're getting our news from a reputable source, a sort of quality ranking system. Facebook as the arbiter of quality in news? What do you think about that? Who do you think should be the judge? And this neatly takes us to the final step in this side of the argument, the argument that fake news is not for want of competition. Consumers themselves can and will impose the ultimate check on this phenomenon, because if they don't want fake news and the platforms keep disseminating it, then they'll vote with their clicks. After all, Consumers now have an abundance of choice in where, when, and how to get their news. So if it's a problem, fake news is, if anything, a problem of too much competition. And mind you, that takes us back to the proposition that if it's a problem, it's to be tackled outside of antitrust. Now, some of you might find that diagnosis of competition overdose to be, well, rather depressing. But it does suggest that possibly the answer to all this rests, at least to some extent, with us. On a TV Ontario program, Tim Wu, the Columbia law professor who's specialised in reminding us about the preciousness of our attention, he put it this way. I think that people of my generation who uh, grew up thinking everything should be free kind of have to suck it up and be like, look, if we want stuff to be better we got to pay for it you get the media environment you pay for i just believe that now so there you have it where do you sit in this debate fake news is it a problem does it have anything to do with competition and if so too little or too much competition Many of the themes that have come up in this debate are, of course, familiar. But I guess there's an added dimension here, and it's that news plays an essential role in our societies and our democracy, in our lives as citizens, not just as consumers. Next on Competition Law, we kick off a series of episodes on blockchain, a technology that some say is going to revolutionise economies. In the first two episodes... I'll be joined by Dr. Thibault Schreppel, who's going to help us understand the building blocks of blockchain and then explore what it might mean for competition policy and antitrust. Look forward to talking to you then. 
Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. <laughs> <laughs>